I want to talk to you today, preach to you today. My eyes have seen your salvation. It begins, uh, this is the infancy narratives of Jesus. And uh, when you think about this, most parents do everything they can for their newborn babies. Once a baby is born, they provide almost constant care, don't they? Holding, feeding, burping, changing, all that sort of stuff. Good parents uh, give their kids everything they need from onesies and strollers to cribs and uh, trust funds, all that sort of stuff that babies need. But the most important thing that parents give to their children, most important things, are spiritual. Good, Good parents pray for their children, don't they? They, they pray for their spiritual growth. They, they faithfully take them to corporate worship. They read Scripture to them, and they, they talk of Scripture to their children. They, they teach their children about God's great salvation. And these things are all extremely important. I think we're going to see as we read uh, Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph, they were that kind of a parent. So if you'll stand with me. We'll begin reading in verse number 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, by the way, let me pause. The word there, what is that purification? Normally, that would be for the baby and the mother. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not Mary and Joseph, it's the baby and the mother, just to, to clarify that. When time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought, up, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. I want you to notice something, that we're going to go back to Exodus in a little bit and see this. Holy to the Lord. What does it mean to be Holy. It needs to be set apart, set apart to the Lord. We'll see something about that in, in a little bit. And to offer uh, sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, this passage of Scripture and the verses that we're going to continue to read in a few minutes. I, I pray that you will uh, help us to behold your salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, and Lord, that we will uh, want to proclaim that salvation to everybody that we see. In Christ's name, amen. 
You know, Mary and Joseph uh, loved God, and uh, they, were, they were devout. They wanted to please God. And as such, the law required several actions regarding their firstborn son. And these are important for us to see as they help explain the narrative. The first act is the act of circumcision. The first thing they did was have the child circumcised. Now, it, it was customary to name the child at, at his circumcision. The name Mary and Joseph chose to give him was Jesus. This was the name given to him before he was even conceived in the womb. You know, most of the time people come up with baby names when they were, uh, when they're, when they're pregnant, right? Um, we, we did that, and uh, we had Jordan and Jessica and if Jeffrey had been a girl, we'd still be fighting over the name, but uh, that's another thing. But uh, anyway, um, uh, they give the baby name either, or, or we choose a name while we're pregnant, but this happened before Jesus was even conceived. We see that in Luke one thirty one. Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And sometimes the very name itself uh, br- begins to bring salvation to sinners. Now, after he was given the name, Jesus received the sign of the covenant. What was the sign of the covenant? Well, with one sharp cut of the blade, his foreskin was cut away from his body, and this literally was the first shedding of his blood. And this was in, in anticipation of the cross. Circumcision went back to the days of Abraham, uh, days of the patriarchs, when God commanded them to uh, circumcise their children. And God promised also, with that circumcision, to bless the children of Abraham to the ends of the earth. The, the, and as a token of his promise, uh, God told Abraham to circumcise his son. And this was the covenant that was given to them, and it was sealed by blood. And so the covenant, the first thing that happened uh, to the, the baby boy was circumcision. Secondly, there was purification. In verse number 22, we see five weeks later, this, this, this is what Luke said, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, what is he talking about, the law of the Lord? I want you to turn back with me to Leviticus chapter number 12. Leviticus chapter number 12, and we'll see uh, uh, some verses. I'm not going to read all the verses, but I'm going to read parts of verses. A, a, um, when a woman gave birth to a child she was she was unclean and she's actually unclean for 40 days and we see this in in this passage in verse number one it says if a woman conceives and bears a male child then she shall be unclean seven days as the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then notice, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. So that time period 
is 40 days. So we're now looking 40 days after the birth of Jesus Christ. Leviticus 12.8 also plays into the narrative because she was supposed to bring a lamb. Look at verse number 8. Verse number 8 says, If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So what does this tell us about Mary and Joseph? It tells us that they were they did not have the financial means to bring a lamb, so they brought um, two pigeons or a turtle dove or something like that, what the, what the law required. It's a clear indication that Jesus was born into a poor family. Maybe not abject poverty because Joseph was occupied, but a poor family. And this is further indication, by the way, of his humiliation in his incarnation, right? He was, he was not born to kings. He was not born in a royal household or a rich household. He was born in a poor household. Now, going back to the purification, remember I said their purification. Normally, uh, the rite of purification presumed that a child was a sinner. But Jesus was without sin, wasn't he? He was the son of God. He was completely without sin. So why did she bring him for purification? If he was without sin, why did she bring him for purification? The answer is that God commanded it. And also because God was going to place the sin of humanity upon him, right? And so because God commanded it, uh, she brought her son for purification. This association uh, between Jesus and the need for cleansing was an early clue that one day he would be the bearer of our sins. For 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to what? To be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here we have that great exchange, the perfect sinless one, is born into the world, and God lays upon him the, the penalty of sin and the sin of all of us who are going to believe, right? You know what it says? And so there's an exchange. We got the better end of the deal, don't you think? That, that's, that's a wonderful exchange for us. And that's what, that, that is what the rite of purification was, was showing. The third action or the third part of this when a child was born, is what we call the presentation. And so she took him to the temple, first of all, for uh, purification. Second, she took him to the temple for presentation. She took him to present him to the Lord. This is an obedience to Exodus 13, 12. Remember how we read in Luke that, that the firstborn child is holy to the Lord? It's more explicit in Exodus 13 and verse number 2. He says, the Lord says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is what? Mine. They're mine, God says. There's no, there's no ours. There's no yours but you loan them to me absolute in no uncertain terms the firstborn is mine 
With these words, God laid rightful claim to the life of every firstborn son in Israel. And yet, the parents were still allowed to raise the children. All they had to do was acknowledge God's sovereignty by redeeming their sons with a sacrifice. And with this simple rite, they were setting them apart for, for God for His service. And so every firstborn child was set apart, every firstborn male, to serve God. We, we, we perform baby dedications here at our church, don't we? We have baby dedications, and it's the same idea. That cute little baby that you hold in your arms is not your baby. That baby is on loan to you from God. That baby is his. The life of every child born in the world, every baby that's born today is God's and God's alone. And so we as parents acknowledge that our children are gifts from the Lord for his service. That's important for us to have that attitude. I remember when our children were at home, we, Heather and I constantly prayed that God would use them for His purpose, that their lives would glorify Him. We often told our children, we don't care what occupation you have. It doesn't matter to us, your occupation. What matters to us is that you know God and you serve God with all your heart. Because that's what God has called parents to do. Raise the children So these children serve God with all their hearts. Parents, have you dedicated your children to the Lord? Do you daily dedicate that little child, the one whose diaper you changed, the one whose nose you wiped, the one that you had to spank, the one you're telling no, the one... That, that little child, that precocious little child, that sweet little child, or whatever kind of little child you happen to be raising right now, do you daily dedicate that child? Maybe it's to the point where, God, I don't know what to do with him. He's yours, right? No, I'm just kidding. But do you, do you dedicate your child to the Lord? Do you actively pray that one day your child will serve him faithfully? Do you view your children as His? Or do you secretly get some sort of validation out of your child's brilliance or, or their talent or that lucrative job that they, they landed? So there's, a, there's sort of a uh, personal validation, personal pride, and so you, you find yourself subtly encouraging them towards something rather than encouraging them towards righteousness. It's important for us to think about. If you find yourself subtly emphasizing something in your child's life that's temporal more than you're emphasizing God and praising God, it is sin. It's absolutely sinful. Because it goes, and why is it sinful? This is so important you understand. Because God gave you children to glorify Him. 
God gave you children to grow up to serve him with all their heart. And so anything short of that goal in your children's life is sinful. Hard to hear sometimes, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. And Mary and Joseph, they were not perfect parents. But they were parents who loved God and wanted their child to love God. Let's shift gears now and go to the, another character introduced here. His name is Simeon. When Jesus was presented in the temple, there were two godly saints who were waiting to receive Jesus. One of the characters uh, was Simeon, and the other is Anna, that we'll see in a little bit. But Luke, one of the things that you'll see about Luke is he loves to present people in pairs. You, you look at the pairs of people, Mary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist and Jesus, here he introduces Simeon and Anna. These were, the, um, these were the people who first found the joy of salvation in Christ. An ordinary man, an ordinary woman who walked with God. Now we meet Simeon in verse number 25. Let's look at this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't know that much about Simeon. The main thing we know about him is his character. Uh, he was a righteous and godly man who was waiting for the coming of Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. He, he believed that God would comfort his people, and by a special promise, he knew that one day he would see the Messiah with his very own eyes. Now think about that kind of a promise. I remember being promised by my parents, hey, tomorrow we'll, I don't know, go to Six Flags or something like that. I just, time seemed to just go to a standstill, didn't it? Um, when I was growing up, our, uh, we had boat races at the local lake, and uh, they were the, the national circuit boat races, the unlimited class, huge, fast boats. And Dad would say, it was always right around Memorial Day weekend, and Dad would say, hey, we'll go to the boat races on uh, tomorrow. Man, you talk about one excited kid. I could not wait to get there. But imagine being Simeon. He epitomized the believer because once he had the promise, he waited patiently for the fulfillment. And it just had to be quite a wait for him. He's actually going to see Messiah. He's actually going to see God in the flesh. I don't, I don't know what it was like for Simeon. I wonder how long he walked back and forth in the temple courts, hoping that the Holy Spirit would point him to the Messiah. If you had received that promise, wouldn't you go to the temple every day? You would. You, it's today the day I'm going to see the Messiah. I've got to make a trip over there, because maybe today's the day that God's going to show you the Messiah. Then one day the Bible says, look at verse number 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. One day the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon said, today's the day. Can you imagine the heart palpitations and, and probably the, the turning stomach that he had to have? I am actually going to meet the Messiah today. I can't imagine what it was like for him. It had to be wondrous and glorious. And so most likely, there were thousands of people in the courtyard. The Temple Mount is massive. If you've ever been there, it's huge. 
easily fits thousands of people with plenty of room to spare. And he's in the courtyard, and the Spirit led him to the right place at the right time to see the Christ. And verse number 27 continues, And when the parents brought the child, their child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God. And the words of his song are incredible. Look at his words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I'll stop right there. These words are amazing. It's amazing what he has in this little sentence. This characterizes a slave who has been on a long assignment and has been dismissed. The word here for Lord, it's not the normal word Lord. It's not the normal word Lord in Scripture. That's curios. This word is despotis. And what it is talking about, it's only used ten times in the New Testament. It literally means slave owner. Master, he he called upon God and he said, my master, my slave owner, the one who owns me. It's further attested to the fact that the word servant is the word doulos and it means slave. And I know I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's one of the things that bothers me about modern translations of the New Testament is almost every single time in the New Testament you read the word servant, it's The word slave, doulos, slave. It's talking about a slave. And God had called Simeon, God the master had called Simeon to watch and wait for the star of salvation. The rising of God's son. And so he's been waiting on post, on duty, He's been dispatched for this, waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally he sees Jesus. And in Jesus he sees the salvation of the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Now this is a fascinating phrase. The word depart means to dismiss. So here's a slave that's been on watch. He's been on duty. And all of a sudden... His duty is performed, and the master says, you're dismissed. But in that, he also does another play on words. Because he says, depart in peace, it's a euphemism in Hebrew for, I can now die in peace. To be dismissed in peace literally means to die in peace. It was euphemism they used in that day. And so, so Simeon is saying, I saw the Lord, and now I can die in peace. Now, many people think that because he used this phrase that Simeon was an old man. But in reality, we don't know how old he was. The Bible doesn't say if he was old or young. Now, it does about Anna, but not about Simeon. And here's the principle. This is so important. This is important for us to understand that the wider application here is that anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. Right? I got saved at the age of 18. At the age of 18, 
I was prepared to die. I could die in peace because I saw the salvation of God through eyes of faith. And anyone who has not seen him is not prepared to die at all. Right? And when we, look, to the majority of the world, the worst thing that could happen to them is for them to die. In their minds. And we know spiritually, that's absolutely true. The, the most horrible thing that can happen to them is to die. But it's literally the exact opposite for us. For us, to die is the greatest thing in the world. There's nothing more wonderful than, than death for us because in death we are ushered into the presence of Almighty God. We're perfect. I'd be able to pastor a perfect flock. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen Jesus by faith? Uh, have you seen him crucified for your sins? Have you seen him raised for your everlasting life? It is then and only then that you're prepared to die. And so Simeon's song continues in a quite literally a walk through the Old Testament. He says, verse number 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. He literally stitched the New Testament or the Old Testament together with this song. It's a walk through the Old Testament. The long-awaited Messiah is here. And he's not just for the Jews. He's also for the Gentiles. Now, if you remember back to verse number 10, in, in chapter 2.10, the angel said that the Messiah has come for Israel. That was for Israel specifically. Now, Zechariah states that salvation will come to the whole world. And it's been prophesied through the Old Testament. And I, I think it would do us wonderful good to walk through a little bit of that. And all we're going to do is the book of Isaiah. So take your Bibles and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 49 and verse number 6. Isaiah 49, verse number 6. And you're going to see, if you, if you keep your finger in Luke 2, if you have a paper Bible, you can do that. If you keep your uh, finger in Luke 2 and flip back and forth, you're going to see all the comparisons and how Simeon did this. 49.6 of Isaiah says this, and I will make you as light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Is, is that Simeon's language right there? Okay, uh, again, turn over now to Isaiah 42 in verse number 6. In this passage, the Lord is speaking to the Messiah and he says this, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And so the Messiah is given as a covenant for the people and as a light for the nations. And what does this light do? What does this light do? Very next verse. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Let me ask you a question. Is this not an apt description of everyone before salvation? Isn't it? 
spiritually blind, imprisoned in sin and death, and in spiritual darkness. Not a more succinct description of everyone who is without Christ than that. Look at Isaiah chapter 51 and verse number 4. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse number 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. There it is again, light to the peoples. Um, Same phrase again, light of the nations. That's the fourth time we've heard it. Now, one more. Turn over to Isaiah 52 and verse number 10. And this is probably the main passage where Simeon was drawing from. Isaiah 52, verse number 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There it is again. That's a statement behind what Simeon's saying. The Lord bared his arm. What does it mean to bear the arm? It means he's rolling up his sleeves and he's getting ready to get busy. He's getting ready to show his strength. And how is he going to show his strength? By giving us Jesus Christ, the salvation for the whole world. And one last passage I want you to turn to in Isaiah. Last one, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, we'll look at verse number 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. Now, what kind of darkness is he talking about here? Spiritual darkness, right? Spiritual darkness. But the Lord, okay, so here's all that darkness, and then there's that word but. But. The Lord will arise among you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. You know what He's doing here? Did you notice the personal pronoun? Your? He's talking to Messiah. He's literally saying, Arise, Messiah. Shine, Messiah. And the nations will come to your light. Beautiful language drawn from basically Simeon was by quoting Isaiah is reminding us that we too can participate in the promises that were made to Israel but extended to the whole world through Abraham's offspring but then there's a little bit of a ominous note in what uh, Zechariah had to say as well look at verse number 33 in verse number 33 we see their reaction and the father and the mother marveled at what was said about him now, Luke is not saying that, by the way, let me clarify, his father and his mother, Luke is not saying that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. Okay? Joseph was Jesus' father more or less by adoption. Legal father, right? After this wonderful retelling of the promises of Isaiah, Simeon draws a sword And he pierces Mary's soul with his sword. Look at the next verse. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. 
And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. With these words, Simeon offered the first hint of the great suffering that Jesus would endure to bring salvation. This is a sword that pierced Mary's soul. Despite her intense joy over the birth of her firstborn son, the day would come when she would suffer greatly and suffer a grief and such anguish that it would strike to her very heart. That day was the day of his crucifixion. God uses this prophecy to prepare Mary for crucifixion so that in the end she would believe and be saved. Right? As she watched Jesus grow, she always remembered what Simeon had said. And when she finally found herself at the foot of the cross, she knew that the prophecy had come true. And the piercing sword that was the death of her beloved son, she saw in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Simeon's prophecy shows also something else, that from the very beginning, God had a mission for Jesus that required him to suffer and die for sinners. And so the crucifixion was not some surprising, unexpected development. Some of the books I've read over the years, uh, philosophers or or theologians would say that uh, Jesus became really popular and it suddenly took him by surprise that that, uh, he was going to get crucified. And, And so... They paint Jesus as this this, um, poor guy who became popular and the crowds just pushed him and and all of a sudden just pushed him into his crucifixion. He's a victim of his own popularity. But it was actually the fulfillment of a preordained plan, wasn't it? God's plan was salvation of his people. It was not the salvation of everyone, though, which is why uh, Simeon spoke of the people falling as well as rising. He said this, he said that Jesus came to judge as well as to save. He said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that is posed. And then he says this, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus exposes what is really in our heart. If we are truly humbled by our sin, we will see our need for grace and be drawn to Jesus, won't we? And when we're drawn to Jesus and humbled by our sin, one day we will rise in glory. In fact, the word that Simeon uses for rising here is used elsewhere for the the resurrection. Everyone who believes in Jesus will rise to heaven to the glory of God. But Simeon also said that some people will um, refuse to be humbled by their sin. And if you refuse to be humbled by your sin, an irretrievable fall is intended here. People will fall away from salvation and they will fall into um, uh, judgment and damnation. And the word from Scripture is, is, is vivid here. And that's exactly what happened. You follow the career of Jesus, and what happens? The whole nation turns against him and conspires 
with the Romans to have him executed. And only a little group, a little bitty group believed. And only that little faithful remnant would rise and the rest would fall in the rock of offense. Do you realize that of the whole nation, how many were in that upper room? Do you remember? 130. Three years of ministry and the vast majority of the people of Israel fell. Not rose, fell. Because they refused to humble themselves. Well, we meet one last person here. We meet Anna. Anna is a prophetess. Let's, let's read these verses. We didn't read these in the opening of, um, of the, the sermon. Verse number 36. And there was a prophetess, and her, her, uh, her name was Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, the, it's interesting that he mentions she's from the tribe of Asher. If you look at the tribe of Asher on the map, they're all the way in the far north on the Mediterranean Sea. They were one of the first tribes to get run over by the Assyrians, and, and, and uh, not much happened from the tribe of Asher in Old Testament history. But Anna is from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, so she was old. It doesn't say that Simeon was old, but it does say that she was. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart out of the temple, worshiping and fasting. Um, I'm sorry, I looked up and I lost my place. Um, until she was 84, she did not part out of the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, I'm going to explain a couple things about Anna, but I do want to explain the numbering system here. Apparently, she was married for um, seven years, and then she was a widow. Now, there's a lot of debate. Was she a widow for 84 years, or was she 84 years old as a widow? And it has to do with the language in the, in the original text. And I'm not going to explain it all. The ESV, some of the others uh, translated differently. The ESV decided that she was 84 years old, okay, just to let you know. But she was a great woman of God. And it's typical of Luke to write about her because Luke takes special notice of the spiritual lives of women. You're going to see that all the way through the book. But then this is typical of the Bible in general, which everywhere... In all through Scripture, the Bible affirms the full dignity of women and honors their service to the Lord. And by the way, the Bible also shows the wickedness of women, just like it does the men. It honors men, shows the wickedness of men, it honors women, and it shows wicked women as well, women who were not good influences on people around them. Here, Anna was a godly woman. And so Luke tells us several important things about her. Number one, she was a prophetess. That is, she was a, a woman who spoke for God. And this is a rare word in Scripture. Although many men served as prophets, traditionally the Jews only counted 
seven prophetesses in the Old Testament. Anna would have been one of them. There are more, several more in the New, but it was still uncommon calling Anna uh, a prophetess. It was an uncommon calling for women. Anna had the rare privilege of knowing and proclaiming God's will for his people. Number two, she was a widow, an old widow. Her husband died after only seven years of marriage. Since girls married so young in those days, she may have been only no more than about 20 when he died. We don't know. Um, This meant that Anna still had 80 more years to serve God with her life, and her life shows what it means to serve God through all seasons of life. When There was a time when she was a young virgin, and in those days uh, she served God by getting to know him and by preserving her purity. But after only seven years of marriage, God called her to be a widow. And sometimes he does that. That's a hard calling, isn't it? It's a hard calling to be called to be a widow or a widower. And it's a hard calling to be called to be single as well, isn't it? And sometimes God does that. And then sometimes, and this is the hardest for me to mention in a group like this, sometimes God calls us to be childless as well. These are all hard callings. And when God gives a hard calling to a person, He doesn't do it because He doesn't like that person. He doesn't do it because that person's a second-class citizen. He does it. And if that person goes well through that, he will reward that person greatly. Because God blesses his children with suffering. Hard for us to understand, isn't it? When she got married, she served God primarily by loving and helping her husband. But after only seven years, God called her to be a widow. He released her from the duty and care for her family so that she could have single-hearted devotion to him. Now, what is your situation? Whatever God calls you to do, at whatever stage of life, serve Him in the appropriate way by living for His glory, whatever that happens to be, right? It's kind of quiet in here at this point, but this is serious stuff that we're talking about, isn't it? Anna served God by offering Him her praise. She participated in public worship, never missing a service. She also fasted. Fasting is, a, is an expression of our total dependence upon God for our, for our spiritual and for our spiritual life. It's a help to prayer because our physical hunger reminds us of our true spiritual need. And so as soon as Anna saw Jesus, she did what everybody who comes to Christ should do. She thanked God for her gift of salvation. The consolation of her widow's heart was that she got to see Jesus Christ. She began to tell other people about Jesus and his redemption. And the news was too good for her to keep it to herself. And she had to share it with everyone she knew. So like the shepherds, she became one of the first evangelists. Her life was all about worship and witness. And so we meet these characters, Mary and Joseph, Simeon, and now we meet Anna And their life was all about Jesus Christ. Three different scenes, four different Christ-centered people. Mary and Joseph, 
Simeon and Anna, all centered on the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And God honors them. What about your life? What is your life all about? Is it all about Jesus Christ and His glory? Or is it all about things here and now? Or is it all about you? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith and you've recognized Him as your Savior? If you have, praise God for the gift of salvation. Speak words about Jesus into the lives of your family and friends so that they can trust Him too. And wait for Jesus, the living hope, that He will come again. These saints were waiting for the salvation of Jesus. And it proclaimed Him everywhere. We who are no Christ are saints who are still, we're still waiting for Christ, aren't we? But we're waiting for Him to come in all the glory and honor that He deserves. And one day, He will come. And my prayer is, even so, come quickly. Amen? Lord, we thank You for Your first coming. I, I cannot imagine what it had to be like for Simeon and Anna to hold their Savior, having been promised. We don't even know if it was months or if it was years that they were promised that they would see the Savior, but they were promised. And they waited, they waited expectantly, they waited patiently, and they waited with joy. And Lord, we don't know when you're coming back either. We thank you for your first coming. We thank you for the salvation that you've offered us. But I pray that we will wait expectantly, living our lives as if you could come back at any moment, that we will live patiently, enduring whatever hardship comes our way. These people's lives were not perfect, Lord. They endured great hardship, but they did it with joy. And Lord, I pray that we will wait for your coming joyfully. Joy not only in our hearts, but coming from our lips as well. For in this, you are honored and glorified. In his name, amen.